There we go. Sorry about that. There we go. Um, I wanted to show that video again because it's so true. And, uh, you know, when we, if we sat down and we said, could you tell me what it means to be humble, we would all probably come up with some different um, definitions of what humility means. And so um, I want to talk with you a little more. We started last week. So far, we've been talking about Micah 6, 8, where he says, this is what the Lord requires of you that you will walk humbly, love mercy, and do justice. And so we're going in that order, uh, even though Micah takes it in a little different order. We, we looked in the first couple of weeks about loving mercy. That is the motivation by which we have for how we live out these other two things. We love mercy. And it's absolutely impossible to truly love people if we don't love mercy. We've been talking about what does it mean to walk humbly. Last week we talked about what if we were to unpack just walking humbly, when we looked at several places in the Old and New Testament, walking literally means that you are in a, in a close fellowship with somebody. It, you could say that you are you are walking with your spouse, or you are walking with your family, or you're walking with your best friend, or you're walking with your church family, or whatever. Which means you are in close fellowship, not simply about actions, not simply about direction. It's about relationship, and it's about walking humbly with each other. So we started unpacking what does humbly mean. We just scratched the surface last week. Today, I want to go a little deeper in this, but I want to talk to you about humility in a little different way than maybe you're expecting. Um, But we ended last week saying that walking humbly with God means we have an ongoing relationship with him. So that idea of close fellowship means that we have some kind of a close uh, relationship, ongoing relationship with him. We said that walking humbly with God means we exercise the authority that we have from him. We, Whenever God created us, and he said everything is good, like if we were still in the garden right now, everything is good, then he said, I want you to have authority over all living things. You are to take what I have created that is good, and you are to manage it, and you are to tend to it, and you are to continue to develop what I have given you. So the idea that humility means a lack of authority um, is not a biblical idea. We also said that walking humbly with God means we follow him wherever he tells us to go, which is important. And we've all struggled uh, with this aspect of, well, which way does he want me to go? What am I supposed to do? How am I supposed to act? Exactly what is that supposed to look like? So I want to talk to you a little bit today about just the challenge of living humbly. And and if we're going to talk about the challenge of living humbly, we do have to come to a better understanding of what it means to actually be humble. I really think this this issue right here is one of the primary problems we have in our culture. It's one of the primary reasons there's so much division. It's one of the primary reasons we struggle so much when it comes to relationships and why um, statisticians, statisticians, sociologists, psychologists will tell us we are we are so incredibly divided right now across so many different lines. So the question is, is how do we cha- the, how do we live humbly? Which brings us to the question of well, what is humility? Which is usually answered with um, some kind of response that says, well, humility is the opposite of pride. Is that what the opposite of humility is? Is it possible to live a life without pride? Is it possible that God wants us to live a life without any pride? whatsoever is it is that really the basis for everything that we understand to be humility because a lot of people would say absolutely yes the problem with living life in sin is it leads us to be proud 
And yet that we mean if the real problem with humility is pride, then what would the absolute opposite of pride be? Would that be the absolute loss of any self-worth or self-value or the belief that we ourselves have any ability whatsoever? Can you think of a place in Scripture anywhere in which Jesus interacted with a person and said, listen, the most important thing you need to know for me today is this, you have absolutely no worth and value whatsoever in the world. The sooner you embrace that, the sooner you'll understand what it means to follow me. No, you probably can't because there's nowhere in Scripture that says that. The problem with the discussion around humility is that we're often talking about it um, in the wrong terms. We're often talking about it in the terms of ego. And while ego has a role to play in this, ego is not the primary culprit or the primary problem that we have if we're not walking in humility. So if that's the case, then what is the problem? What is the solution? What is humility if it's not the opposite of pride? Dan Kent is an author and a psychologist. He works often with those in the mental health field. And he talked about, he he wrote a book called Confident um, Humility. It'd be a great book for you to pick up. He kind of begins the discussion with a really great analogy. And the analogy is that there are two ways of thinking when it comes to humility and and when it comes to pride and what does it look like to live within this fear of our world and our ego and he calls them the two ditches. So there's the ditch of smallness. The ditch of smallness basically says that people are fundamentally bad. You're fundamentally bad and you need to spend the rest of your life fundamentally looking at yourself more soberly in a less positive manner. Understand you're fundamentally bad. Stay somewhere in the sphere of being fundamentally not good. Understand your place. Accept your place and you'll be okay. That doesn't really feel good, does it? That doesn't really feel like a way we want to spend our lives. Listen, spend the rest of your life. I know you've got your future ahead of you. You've got all the things you want to do with your life, and so here's how you're going to spend your life. Uh, You need to go around making sure that you never get too excited about anything and that you never feel confident, that you never felt like you did a good job. Is that what it means? And so the problem with the ditch of smallness or the enemy with the ditch of smallness is this, that that pride is the enemy as well as thinking too highly of yourself. Now, we can point to some places in Scripture that may actually reinforce, and it's probably one of the reasons that so many churches and Christians, Christians fundamentally accept the ditch of smallness because the Scripture does say things like, um, all, none are worthy, all are sinful right? No one is good. I mean, Scripture seems to outright say that. So it's easy to accept the ditch of smallness that just says, spend the rest of your life making sure you don't think too much of yourself. The problem with that way of thinking is it leads people to a very defeated life. And we can't find anywhere that Jesus actually talks to anybody and introduces them to the ditch of smallness. The ditch of bigness is is kind of the other ditch that people go into. It's kind of the cultural way that people try to understand ego and self-worth and self-value. And even this concept of humility, the ditch of bigness says people are fundamentally good. They're fundamentally good. And Scripture also kind of points to this in, in, in which it says when God created us, we were good. 
And we've looked over the last few weeks at different places in Scripture where Scripture says, even though we fall in sin, we are still bearers of the image of God, which is good. But the problem with the ditch of bigness is that whenever we accept goodness as our fundamental nature, then that tends to grow into what we think is really our fundamental enemy in the church, and that is, can you guess? Pride. I'm fundamentally good. That means I fundamentally should be celebrated. I fundamentally am wonderful. People should look at me and be thankful that they're around me. I'm fundamentally good. That doesn't mean that you can come from the perspective of being fundamentally good and you have to move towards pride, but that's often where it goes. But the enemy of the ditch of bigness, Dan Kent says, is not pride. The enemy is that you have no worth. Shame. Shame is the enemy of the ditch of bigness. What's interesting that he points out is that the ditch of smallness and the ditch of bigness, their enemies are the opposite, but yet what each is striving for is actually opposite as well. Each ditch creates the thing the opposite ditch warns about. The ditch of smallness leads to and idealizes shame. If I see myself as fundamentally bad, then shame must be fundamentally good. I recognize I'm bad. And we see this in people all the time in which if a person is humble, what would we say are the characteristics of humility? You know, they don't push themselves on you. They don't, they're not offensive. They lift other people up. I mean, we would say that that's probably some of the characteristics of it, but we would also say that they don't really have an opinion. We would also say that they make sure to know their place. And it often leads to people pursuing humility to be in this place where I don't have an opinion, I don't have a voice, I don't want people to think poorly of me, I, I, I'm just going to be very quiet and I'm just going to sit here in my badness and I'm just not going to think about any of that. So shame actually becomes celebrated. At times we can get in a room together and, and, and sometimes Christians can do this and they can say, I just feel so bad. I mean, I've just not followed Jesus well. And, and, and we can begin to become and get into a mode of confession, which is kind of sometimes hard to tell. Are we confessing or are we trying to one-up one another with how bad we think we are? Oh, I mean, yeah, you think that's bad, but man, I have just come to new realizations of how deep and depraved and dark I really am and how much I need Jesus. And the problem is, is that in both ditches, there's also some truth, right? Where do we land in this? The ditch of smallness leads to an idealized shame, but the ditch of bigness, it leads to arrogance, which is the enemy of the ditch of smallness. So why am I spending so much time on these ditches? So where does humility lie? Now, fundamentally, what we do when we face with a problem like this is we say, well, somewhere in between, right? a little bit of the ditch of smallness, a little bit of the ditch of bigness, and maybe we're not even in a ditch at all anymore. We're just somewhere in between. But can you be fundamentally proud and full of shame at the same time? Probably not in the same moment. Where you have deep feelings of pride and look how good I am. And at the same time, look how bad and shameful I am. Now, there certainly would be uh, possible to pretend to be proud 
when you're feeling shame, but to actually feel pride and shame at the same time, the two the two realities don't intermingle. You're typically one or the other. So if it's not in between, really, what is it? Can you be a little bit shameful? Can you be a little bit proud? What I believe is that this concept of humility is at the core of what's wrong with many people in their faith who struggle to believe that God is there. The problem with humility is the problem that that messes up relationships within the church and outside of the church. The fundamental issue of humility is the, the, the problem that we're all struggling with to actually live out the joy that Jesus says we're going to have by following him. And it also explains much of Jesus' teaching when we understand what humility really is. We're going to look at Matthew 23. This is when Jesus is really about to give it to the scribes and the Pharisees. It's the kind that we like to read and we like to think terrible things about those people because they're bad and we're good. We're not the Pharisees or the scribes. So how quickly we get into the bad versus good mentality. I'd say right now, if we were to have everybody walk up and, and, and I just simply ask this question, here's what I want you to do. I want you to name who is the fundamentally worst group in our world today that is hurting people. And you probably have a name or a group of people that would fit that description. And we would consider them as bad or maybe less than. Christians, we certainly do that with the scribes and the Pharisees. Man, I'm glad we're not them. Let's make sure we're not them, and we're better than them. Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do, for they preach but do not practice. The problem with them, they know the truth, they know what is right, they speak what is right, but they don't practice what is right. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. In other words, they want you hunkered over the shame and guilt and activity while they themselves sit back and have ultimate freedom. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. If you'll remember, the fringes are those tassels we've talked about several times. These things that were the epitome of the law, what it means to obey and to follow God. And you would walk around and tie them around your finger and you would just remember and think about the law, the Torah. They had these long ones that would drag the ground so they would look more observant, more on top of things, more religious. They love God more than other people do in the phylacteries, I'm glad we don't have them because I can't even say them. These boxes that they would carry around on their head, they would make theirs extra big. You just see it. You see them coming from a distance. Now that is an observant person. Look how big their phylactery is. You need to be careful how you say that and where you say it, by the way. They make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long, and they love the place of honor at feasts. Consider that. What's the sin here? They love the honor. Yeah, pride. 
which puts them in what position over everyone else at the feast? Puts them over them, right? Love the honor. We like to walk in and be noticed. I mean, that's just a basic fundamental human trait. We want to be seen. We want to be heard. We want to be cared about. We want people to say, I'm glad you're here. This goes beyond that. This goes to the place where you're, wow, look at him. He gets to sit at the front of the table. Look at them. They have the position of honor. Oh, man, I don't know how they got here, but they they did something right. Now, we don't do that today. I mean, we don't have that situation at church, and, and we don't function that way, although there are some there are some churches that literally, if you're going to attend the church, you have to go through a little class and when the pastor walks in the door, you have to stand. Now, it could be that they come in to preach. It could mean that they come into a small group. It could mean they just come in for a meeting. But when the pastor walks in, you stand. What is the fundamental message there? They're more honored than we are. That's exactly what's happening here. It's exactly what's happening here. Their broad phylacteries and their long fringes. I'm more honored than you. Verse 7. And greetings in the marketplaces are being called rabbi by others, but you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher and you are all brothers. Hmm. Okay. What's Jesus saying here? Because Jesus doesn't have a problem with the word rabbi, because he uses the word rabbi all the time. He calls people rabbi. It in and of itself means nothing other than this is a a, a title or a position you have. But now he's saying here, do not call each other rabbi because you are brothers. What do you perceive is the problem with whatever use of this word rabbi is being made here if he's comparing it to you? But you are brothers. Again, inequality. I want to be seen in a position. I don't have a title. That's not just a problem in the church. This is a problem in the workforce, right? I want to make sure my name's on the plaque. I want to make sure my plaque's a little bit bigger than that person I really don't like seeing when I walk into work. I want to make sure my position's higher. I want to make sure my paycheck's higher. There's a reason that human resources don't want everyone to know what everyone else makes. Because as soon as we know what somebody else makes, we start comparing ourselves. Either you're not as important, or I'm more important than you. This is the way we work. This is the way that sin works within us. Even within the very first original sin was the temptation to say, you can be like God. You don't have to be someone other than God. He doesn't want you to be like him, but... You don't have to hold a position of where you are. You can be better. Better. We have carried that temptation into so many different iterations in our relationships with other people. It's just sickening. It's just sickening. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher. You are all brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in Heaven, neither be called instructions, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. I about that last week. Whoever exalts himself will be 
humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Like, what is it, Jesus? What does that mean? And he is completely taking their understanding of a class system and turning it upside down. Well, however you want to generate those classes, whether it be financial, whether it be position, whether it be uh, your nationality, whether it be your title in the church, he's turning it all upside down. And those who are considered great are considered least. We see that over and over and over and over in the New Testament. And Jesus talks about that over and over and over again. And then he begins into the seven woes. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. For you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel across the sea and land to make a single proselyte, and when he becomes a proselyte, you make him twice as much as a child of hell as yourselves. In other words, you go about talking about all this Jesus stuff, or not Jesus stuff, law stuff at this time, but you don't actually turn people to God. You just make them miserable. They're worse off than had they never met you to begin with. Some of the things we've got to pull out of this, and what I think this is pointing us to when we talk about humility and begins to make other parts fall into place when we talk about humility, is that we are not to call each other rabbis. Not the title, Jesus uses it. We're not to see a person over another person. I want you just to let simmer in your mind for the next few minutes. What if the picture of humility is the picture that we are all 100% equal? No one is above another, nor is anyone below another. Your, your first mindset might be, well, that's not how the world works. Yes. It's not how the world works. Well, that's not how life works at work, so... I mean, I can't go into work and walk up to the CEO and say, hey, you and I are fundamentally equal. Which may be one of the reasons that Jesus says, be in the world, but don't be of the world, because the world doesn't understand this. What if we are all fundamentally equal? We've had in our country different fights for equality. We have struggled within our country. We have struggled within the world. And it's not because it's the United States, as some might lead us to believe. The issue of equality has been there from the very beginning. This is the seed of sin that's in each of us. The need to be better than others and for others to be less than us. What would it look like to be humble without living in perpetual shame and without falling into that destructive pride and arrogance? What would it look like to live humbly? Again, Dan Kent says this about the ditch of smallness, that ditch that says you're fundamentally bad. The ditch of smallness puts sin at the center of its theology. Renee? Okay.
Yes, absolutely. Yes. Right. Mm. So that would be a ditch of smallness, the idea that we each equally suck, and a really terrible way to live life, I'll tell you. So, yeah, we're, yeah, 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 yeah. So, so that we, yes, and there is truth in where you're coming from and the perspective from which you're coming from, which is this, that the ditch of smallness centers around sin, which we all have the same problem of sin, and therefore all having the same problem of sin, we all are equally failing and living a sinless life. Yes. So there's an equality level of here that means there's a problem with us. It's kind of like a, a an equal playing field of brokenness where the things that break us are not looked at in a hierarchy because, uh, and, and which is why Jesus said, listen, you've You've heard it said, don't murder somebody. But if you hate somebody, it's exactly the same thing. Although we would say, if like if I'm standing here in front of you and you have a gun, I do not think of you shooting me and you being mad at me as the same thing. But God does, right? But God does. So, but if the ditch of smallness puts sin at the center of its theology, what cannot be at the center of its theology? Think about that. If sin is the center of our theology, it does not negate the problem of sin. But sin should not be the center of our theology. L- literally, the word theology means a word about who? And what we sometimes do with the concept of humility and that we all suck to the same degree is that we actually don't put God at the center of our theology. We actually put our sin at the center of theology, the problem that must be solved, which is why so many people accept Christ as their Savior, but they never actually experience the joy of knowing Jesus because they've solved the problem. But that's not really the problem. There are lots of other problems. And Jesus is not with this teaching to the Pharisees saying sin is not a real problem because literally Jesus talked about sin all the time. So sin is absolutely a problem. But the problem with the ditch of smallness in which we are just all fundamentally bad is that what we end up doing is that we end up being so focused on sin that we miss Jesus is where I would say the difference is. The problem with equally the ditch of bigness where they were fundamentally good is that we focus too much on Jesus and not enough about what that Jesus had to die on a cross for us. So, so there's problems. And if we try to figure out somewhere in between, the problem with in between is that what exactly does that look like? What exactly does that look like? The ditch of bigness, on the other hand, puts our goodness and the elevation of ourself at the center of its theology. It's like the propelling of ourself, which is the problem with both mindsets when it has to do with humility. And if you're thinking, well, what does the ditch of bigness look like? It looks like going driving down the road in a billboard that says, you deserve this. 
Like, you're so good, you deserve to live here. You deserve the upgrade. You deserve the vacation. You deserve to be celebrated. You deserve to be honored. We get that message. So it is one of the primary marketing messages that works today for people. You deserve. The mindset that we're all special. What happens when we're all special? Think about it. What happens when we're all special? No one's special, right? But that's the message of our culture. We want everyone to know they're special. But by very definition, special can't be shared by everyone. But that's the message. It's the ditch of bigness, the idea that you're good, and it leads to, at the center of it, ourselves, which is one of the decaying problems of the church that our theology has become about ourselves. So there's equal problems becoming about ourselves. There's equal problems becoming about Jesus. I mean, I'm sorry, about sin. So where does that lead us? What if both were wrong? Because what Jesus is most concerned about is for us experiencing the love of God and being transformed, not fundamentally struggling through shame and pride. Does Jesus ever go somewhere and say, hey, listen, it's good to see you? Okay. Here's what I want you to do. I'm going to come back again one day, but I want you, until I do that, I want you to struggle with shame and pride. That's your goal. That's your that's the, your issue. Day in and day out, shame and pride needs to be on your mind all the time. Can you think of a time Jesus ever says that? But yet, we looked at the story last week of a prostitute who sees Jesus and breaks a bottle of perfume and wipes his feet and just sits and weeps over him, just being in his presence, and he says, she has got it. The center of our theology has to be Jesus. So what does that mean for humility? And this is where I think this falls, and this is where humility begins to come into focus for us. The need for some to be superior and others to be inferior is at the root of a lot of our problems. Whether it be, I believe I should be superior, God should be inferior. There is a huge movement for that right now. God needs to explain himself to me. Because I think it's just the craziest, even if you're not a believer, the idea that the supreme being that created all things and it runs the universe somehow has to answer for us who, like, we can't sometimes even make it to work, right? Like, we, we can't hardly even get out of bed some days. And, like, this, like, God is going to have to explain himself to us? There's a huge movement towards that. That we're superior over God. There's an even bigger movement where we are superior over some people, Baptists over Presbyterians, Republicans or Democrats over the other, those who use Facebook over Twitter or LinkedIn, Netflix or Prime Video or Hulu. We have all these ways that we compare ourselves to other people. Uh, it's, it's so interesting. Uh, if you... There's a, a really interesting documentary that you should watch called The Social Dilemma. And it just talks about how we're controlled by social media, which interestingly points the picture of fear, but uses fear to push the message. It's really kind of interesting. You have to watch it with a grain of salt. But how much do we compare ourselves? 
get on Instagram and we see that our friend that lives down the street, she was up this morning, kitchen's clean, it is spotless, she has all the right shiny bowls. Like, how does she even get all the gunk that gets based, you know, baked on the bottom of the pan off? Like, I can't even get it off our pans, so we could never do a picture like that. But there's a, it's like they just took them out of the box, which is possible. And they're making pancakes and eggs, and they're making bacon, and they've got this spread, and their children look like they just came out of the shower, their hair has just been done, they look perfect and content, and they're eating this meal. Why? I have my stuff together better than you. Your cereal in the cupboard, go get it. You know, which isn't going on in the rest of our houses. Go get your cereal. See, we, we do that. What about our selfie that takes 15 tries before we get the one that gets published? Why? That doesn't look better than anybody else's. Let's retake it. That doesn't look good as everybody else's. Let me retake it. See, this need to be superior or to have some that are inferior is at the core of so many of our problems. Our drive to succeed. Why are some people driven to succeed? They sabotage themselves. They start taking drugs they hurt all the people around them just to succeed why 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 because they need to be better they need to be better than others it's why we go to war we go to war because one group is deemed not as important as another group either someone's abusing someone in their country and others come to the rescue or we say no we're in power your voice doesn't count we'll silence you I know there's lots of nuance for war. But at the core of it is the sense of we are going to dictate how things go, not you. We have racism. We have sexism. We have all kinds of isms. If you point down and boil them down to the very bottom of what they are, the isms simply say this, one group is better, more valuable, and worthy than another group. This is how our world works. That's why each generation criticizes the generation before it because they've ruined the planet and the generation after it because they're lazy and don't have any work ethic. Think about it. Almost every generation criticizes the one before and the one after. Why? Because we're the best. And it's, it's sad for Gen X that they didn't grow up in the 80s, but that's okay because we know who's the best, right? Hmm. <laughs> We need someone, anyone to be less than us to make us feel better about ourselves. So as we struggle through this, I need to wrap up. We see this in other places in Scripture. Romans 12, Paul says this, By grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, hmm. but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. We, though many, are one body in Christ, individually members one of another. In other words, we're all equal in the body of Christ. Every one of us, sinner and saint, we are all equal in the body of Christ. Matthew 7, 12, the golden rule, whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Mark 12, 30 says, And you shall love the Lord your God, this is Jesus, with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. The second of this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Not more than yourself, not instead of yourself, but as yourself. 
equally. What does it actually look like to value other people the same way that we value ourselves? What does it really look like to value the people sitting next to you, to value the people that cut you off, to value the people that are holding you up at Walmart? To What if we saw everyone we walked into as of equal value and worth to us? Their hopes and dreams have equal merit and value as our own. Would, the, would things change? Can we put people over politics? People over economics? People over individual success? What if the question we begin to ask ourselves is not what do I want, but what does our community need? And I don't just mean us here in this church, but I mean the people we do life with, the people we go to work with, our neighbors. What if we said, what does this community need? We cleaned out our, our flower bed Yesterday, because as our neighbors drove by, they would look at our house like, you know you're messing this neighborhood up for the rest of us. <laughs> I didn't want to work on the flower beds yesterday, but they're so bad. They are so bad that we did it. And we both commented, I, we're just glad we don't have a homeowners association because we would have had been written up so many times by now. What happens if we go out, we think about what others need? What happens if we look at our finances and we say, what do others need? I think this is what humility is. I think this bears out through lots of Jesus' teaching. Of course, knowing it's not all about you. There is a, a place of humility that keeps our value from growing, 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 growing in our own eyes. We're fighting that pride and arrogance. Of course, there's a piece of, of shame, that, of brokenness, but Jesus says, listen, I've come to take that away, not keep you in that perpetual state. See, there's a way of being humble and being confident, being strong, having a strong foundation, having your house built on the rock that is more than just your theology or your doctrine. Believe, you, can, you can believe that you were created to do extraordinary things and be humble. Did you know that? You can be confident and be humble. In fact, some of the most humble people I know are incredibly confident. They don't bend to the winds of what everybody tells them they're supposed to be because they're so wallowing in a world of shame that they'll become what the most confident person in the room tells them to become. Instead, they have a sense of confidence. I know who I am. I don't think too highly of myself. Believe that the person next to you was created to do extraordinary things just like you were. I think humility looks like that we stop comparing ourselves to one another. We stop caring what everybody else thinks. We believe the best in others. I know this is a problem. It would be great to live in a world that we can think best of others because they're thinking the best of, of us. But that doesn't happen in the world, right? Jesus said some things about that. He said things like, if someone slaps you on the cheek, turn the other one. Because he knows this is going to be a struggle for us. Someone steals something from you. Rather than getting mad, what kind of person would do that? Give them something else. Because they're in need. Because they're important as, as just as important as you are. Well, that throws a lot of our thinking upside down. 
It means we stop comparing others to ourselves. I've arrived. You haven't. And I think at the center of humility is the undying knowledge that Jesus is real and that he loves us. Overwhelming, over-encompassing love. You are loved. You are so valuable as well as the person next to you and the person that's driving by right now and the person that's at the store and the person that could care less about God right now. You are all equally loved by God. And he died for all of us. He didn't say, okay, I'm dying for him. It's not your fault, though. Don't find it in Scripture. (laughs) I believe at the core of the church has to be this sense of humility. We value each other equally. Next week, we're going to move into doing justice, and I don't think, and the reason we're saving that for last is because you, unless you love mercy and you walk humbly with God, um, doing justice gets really messy, and it is really messy right now. So we're going to talk a little bit about that next week as far as what does, if we, we understood humility in this way, this overwhelming sense that we are all loved by God equally, created equally in God's image with equal value and equal worth, and God has an has an equal calling for us and has equal hopes for each of us. How does that lead us to action? How does that lead us to walking humbly with our God? We're going to talk more about that next week. Father, God, I thank you that Jesus modeled confidence and humility. Thankful that he was a God of authority. and a God of compassion. Father, I pray that we would be a people filled with grace, hope, joy. Ah, Father, shame is just a part of our lives and living in a broken world, but I pray that our shame would not define us. I pray that our self-worth would not define us, but that you would define us. Pray that our confidence isn't rooted in our titles or our paycheck or our neighborhood or whatever emblem is on our car, but our confidence is rooted in your love, your overwhelming mercy. Father, help us to walk humbly with you. Help us to walk as Jesus walked. In Jesus' name we pray.